Good evening and welcome to Slam the Gavel, the show that tells it all regarding family court, other court issues, as well as CPS. I'm your host, Marianne Petrie, and today I have a great guest on. Her name is Attorney Ingrid Irwin. She's a 48-year-old and a former Catholic from Ballarat, Victoria, Australia. Uh, that is the pedophilic epicenter of Australia. Ballarat is like Boston in the film Spotlight. She is an attorney since 1999, working in family violence, child protection, family law, civil law, sexual assault survivors, suing perpetrators for personal injury, intervention orders. She has represented clergy sex abuse clients in the Australian Royal Commission into institutional responses to CSA. She has acted for police complaints who alleged they were abused by Cardinal Pell. And the bulk of her practice has involved acting for women and children in family law and family violence matters, where the bulk of the victims are female because violence is most definitely gendered. Uh, she's also an author who has written two books on the law and sexual assault. These are available on Amazon. One is Dolly Incapax in 2018 means accused is deemed incapable of criminal intent guilty mind due to their young age between ages of 10 and 14. This is her memoir and her pen name is Cleopatra Jones. Her other book is Noel Prosquini. I know I'm pronouncing that wrong. In 2020 means do not prosecute. This is a call to action and critically assesses the latest developments in the law in this area from 2018 to present day. This is published under her name, Ingrid Irwin, and she's also an activist against sexual abuse and child sexual abuse on social media like Facebook and being a speaker of events, including at the recent Women's March 4th Justice in Canberra in March of 2021. I totally welcome you, Attorney Irwin. Thank you for that <laughs> lovely introduction. Yes, there's a lot to get out there. I've been around a long time. I've got grey hair because of it. Um, but thank you, Marianne. Yeah, look, um, I've been practicing law here in Australia for a long time. And um, I just think this is a critical issue to talk about sexual assault and all the facets that a survivor hits when they hit the legal system because it doesn't work. And no. so that's the focus of today. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, I had Marita Murphy on several weeks ago and she mentioned that I should interview you and I'm oh. so glad to have you on. Yeah, she's a wonderful friend and she's been through similar legal traumatic steps as I have and as all my client base has. And I often say to Marita, you know, Marita, with no offence, I mean, I could scrub her name off a file, off one of my client files, and it's all the same story. You just take the name off, put the new name on, and it's the same terrible story from Australia. Um, but I'm also here to say that I know that in America, it's really not that much better. We've got people like Gloria Allred, um, although I'm not as famous as her, nowhere near it, I, I liken myself to her. I'm one of these advocates that would just dearly love to be able to represent sexual abuse complainants, but in the criminal matter where it matters most. And mm -hmm. I think, Marianne, the first point I want to make is that you will see a lot of lawyers on TV and then they seem to be representing victims, but that's really only in terms of the media and getting like, you know, the awareness out there. Survivors of sexual assault or any crime for that matter, any crime, no victim has the right to a lawyer. 
and no victim has the right to be part of the actual criminal case. And this is where it falls apart for the survivors because that criminal case is the most important case when it comes to a person's sexual assault justice path. And I'll tell you why. The criminal case and the outcome of that case will affect any other cases that are running at the same time. So, for example, you might have a family law client and they are alleging that, you know, the other parent has harmed the child. Okay, and so then they will report that to the authorities and to the police or to the Child Protection Association of whichever country it's in. Same story, different, you know, <laughs> different mm -hmm. name. Mm -hmm. And so what happens is those cases can't be determined until the outcome of the criminal allegation is determined. So those cases are put on hold, if you like. They're adjourned. We, we lawyers call it adjourning the case. And so those cases are adjourned to wait until to see what happens when the police investigate and what their outcome is. And here in Australia, our percentage rate of getting a conviction in a criminal case is 1%. So we have a 1% conviction rate. All of these brave survivors coming forward, telling their truth, telling their story, building up the courage, going to police, doing mm -hmm. all everything right that's legally prescribed, there's only 1% come out the other side with a conviction against their perpetrator or their alleged perpetrator. So think about what happens to all those other cases that are depending on that conviction they all fall apart as well they all go down the gurgler so your family law case fails because you haven't been able to prove on the balance mm -hmm. of probabilities right is a separate um test this is beyond all reasonable doubt because it's criminal so you haven't been able to prove beyond all reasonable doubt that those allegations happened so therefore the family court judge sits there and says oh right yes now this matter's coming back now what did the police say oh no no conviction sorry okay so therefore your allegations haven't been proved and so the family mm. law case fails the child protection case fails everything fails so where we've got to go if we want justice for sex assault where we have to go is back to the start and look at the criminal case and think why do we only have a one percent conviction rate in sex assault matters and mm -hmm. i can tell you the answer very very easy from my lawyer's perspective why it is is because we have no right to a lawyer and we have no right to be joined in the action now in both america and in australia what you have is the prosecutor it's the state prosecution service and they are bringing the action against the alleged perpetrator so you have you know the prosecutor there and what happens is the public in both America and Australia I think are a little bit confused they think the prosecution service and the prosecutor is their lawyer they think that that's their lawyer they're representing them in this action because they want justice they want to get the person behind bars now that's not true. The prosecution service do want to press charges and do want to find those charges proved against the person. And so they'll run trials and everything we watch on telly, all those great crime dramas. Yes, it looks like they're there for the victim. They're not there for the victim. You see, the victim should be represented separately. They have their own legal voice because what the state thinks and what a victim thinks can be quite different, even though they might be united in their cause and what they want as an outcome, their views and their interests are quite different. So I know for a fact, Marianne, that when I was raped as a child, it wasn't the state that was raped, it was me. Mm -hmm. So even though the state act like it looks like on behalf of the victim, they don't. They are a, a rough <laughs> diamond, do you know what I mean? They are doing their job 
but they don't actually represent a victim or a number of victims. So there might be a number of victims in a, in a criminal case. How can the state even represent or understand those interests of those individual victims unless they were individually represented? And the answer is they can't. They can't. And mm -hmm. so when the prosecution service in many cases, because as I've said, 99% here in mm -hmm. Australia fail. So yes. how can they actually turn that around unless they know the victim's specific interests and specific instructions? We, we lawyers call it instructions. So what that means is when the prosecution service talks to a victim and might say, oh, look, we're thinking we're going to have to drop this case. There's not enough evidence or, you know, we don't like the way this case is going. It's not looking good. We're going to drop it. When that happens, the victim can't stop that. The victim can't put up their hand and say, hey, but look, what about this evidence? Or I really think this is important. Please don't drop the case. That that voice goes out the window. We don't have a legal voice in the case. We're meant to be heard. We're meant to be listened to and respected through that journey. But listen to and respect doesn't equal legal respect or a legal voice. And mm -hmm. so this is where it falls down. Now, in Australia, I cannot believe this is the case. This is at a time of me too. This is at a time of women's equality. We want equal pay, equal rights. I mean, how many waves of feminism can we have since my grandmothers were around, you know? I feel like I am, like, in the worst position ever that you can imagine. And, you know, often here in Australia, I'm not sure about America, but here in Australia, you know, we're criticised. Um, other countries like India, say, for example, we say, in India, oh, women's rights are so bad, you know, they have acid poured on them or whatever. And mm -hmm. that is true. That is, mm -hmm. I, I, I totally abhor that. That is shocking. But what I say here in Australia, in the lucky country, is I have legal acid poured on me, civilised legal acid in the form of no convictions, in the form of the prosecution service chucking out cases that they should still run. And mm -hmm. I just think that's not good enough in this day and age. We cannot be asking women, brave women and children, to come forward with their truth Mm -hmm. and to tell police and authorities when I already know that 99% of us end up on the scrap heap of the criminal justice system. Mm -hmm. So what is the point of asking someone to add legal re-trauma to their existing sexual assault trauma when mm -hmm. I can already see that it has catastrophic consequences for coming forward? And so then I just think to myself, well, you can't have the two <laughs> like you can't have on the one hand that operating and this system because all we do is feed a system that actually re-traumatizes us mm -hmm. so getting to the heart of it is to deconstruct the myths and they're not just myths about you know who the perpetrators are things like that it's the myths about the legal system itself about mm -hmm. the patriarchy and about how it works and who runs the legal system for whom and what we have in australia is a whole lot of propaganda about our care and concern about survivors and so what we'll do is we'll we'll make a, a sex assault survivor australian of the year we've got a lovely young lady called grace tame and she's doing a great job um, but she's the australian of the year and i think what a joke because here in australia she got a conviction, she did, and that's why she's used as the Australian of the Year, in my view, because she's from the 1% camp that get justice. So what our government wants everyone to think is that they could all be like Brace Tame. And if they're mm -hmm. brave and come forward and they're, yeah, 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 then that can be their reality. And it's mm -hmm. just not true because I'm here at the coalface down in the trenches mm -hmm. and I've got clients who all 
thought that they would be like Grace Tame. They all thought they could get a conviction. And mm. I'm as well as well mm. one of them because my husband's a criminal lawyer. So I know all the little potholes more than most. And still I didn't get a conviction. And so I just think that it's really rotten of the government to have these sort of um, poster childs, you know, if you like, of a cause. And it, but that's no disrespect to Grace Tame. She's wonderful. She's she's doing absolutely the best she can. But you know, she's not a lawyer. And I think that different people have a different agenda according to their experience. And if your experience is one where you got justice, then when you are looking at changes, naturally you're not going to be as critical of the legal system as someone that didn't get justice. And so she's already on um, other roads to like educating young children about, you know, their own safety and how to protect themselves, which is all wonderful stuff. But I'm still back in the legal trenches and very jaded and very angry and disillusioned about the past for the survivor. And I don't mean the survivor that the government wants us all to think. So they want us to think of survivors as, you know, someone disenfranchised um, with, a, with an obvious disability like a wheelchair or someone that can't speak very well. They love survivors like that because then they are looking for the most vulnerable survivors that really don't know what the barriers are to their justice and might actually... Um, almost self-combust and reflect back onto themselves that it was something wrong with their case or they weren't brave enough or, you know, the evidence was shaky when it really wasn't and it's not about them. But that's what they like. They don't want an intelligent survivor that can pick holes in the system and can see it for what it is. So there is a little bit of a silencing of people like myself here in mm -hmm. Australia. And so, as I said, the spin and the reality don't match. Mm -mm. And... Um, it's really, it makes, it drives me wild. I'm like red hot with anger. <laughs> well, it, and it re-traumatizes these people that are coming forward and they think they're going to be heard and they're just shoved aside. Correct. Well, they're heard to a certain point and that's even more insulting. So what it is, it's just process. When you enter the legal system, they are very good to you. They're very polite. The local police station follow the protocols and procedures that they're meant to. Um, I've never had a rude policeman. I mean, you know, it, it's not in obvious ways. What I'm saying is everybody can tick their box on the pro forma that, the, that are the professionals that you come in contact with. They can all be very good. They can all be and really care. And you know what? They can also believe you, but it doesn't matter because the truth doesn't get traction in our legal system. And this is the problem that we've got. We've got a whole lot of people that believe us, including in our country, you know, we're divided in states and we have premiers as the head of those states. And here in Australia, I live in Victoria, well, the state of Victoria, and we have a premier, Dan Andrews, and he appears to be very sympathetic to survivors because we've had very high profile cases running here in Victoria against um, uh, Cardinal Pell, who um, was completely freed of all charges and won in the high court. So um, he was found not guilty um, in the end. So um, I just wanted to stress that. But what I'm saying is we've had a Royal Commission and high profile cases that have had the interest of the world here in Victoria. And our Premier says the message, I see you, I hear you and I believe you. That was his message to all survivors at the conclusion of the George Pell case. Now, what I say is I don't want to hear that from him. I don't want to hear I see you, I hear you, I believe you because he as the Premier is in charge of our state law. 
our criminal law because in Australia it's state-based. So our different states have slightly varying different criminal laws. But I think if he is really concerned and sees us and hears us and believes us, that he should do something about his criminal law that doesn't work for sex assault victims. So, you know, looking at the legislation, changing the law when it comes to consent. But the big one, the big elephant in the room is give us legal status mm-hmm. in the criminal case. And what backs up my argument is this, right? For those that think, oh, it's too complicated to add another lawyer in the mix. You know, you've got the state versus the defence attorney. Well, we can't have another attorney in there. Well, I say, yes, we absolutely can and we should. Because in other jurisdictions that I've worked in, say, for example, family law, we have an independent children's lawyer. That's a lawyer that represents the child and the child's voice is heard in that family law case. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the past, we just heard from mum and dad and, you know, any other interested parties in the matter. But I'm saying we've long recognised here in Australia that there are more parties than the adults in a party. Mm -hmm. And by the same token, in child protection cases... We have a whole stack of lawyers, uh, you know, attorneys in one case. So we might have um, a child protection case where a child is deemed at risk of harm. And so that um, Department of Human Services, it's called here in Australia, there will be a lawyer for the department. And that used to be me. That was one of my roles. I used Mm. to represent the department in matters where children were considered at risk of harm and removed from that home where they're at risk. But I can tell you now, when that case ran, I was the lawyer for the department, but the child at risk of harm got their own lawyer. Then the siblings of those of that child also got their own lawyers. Each sibling had a separate lawyer. Then you have a lawyer for the foster mum and dad. Then you have a lawyer for biological mum. Then you have a lawyer for biological dad. Then you might have a grandma or any other interested person in the, in the case. You might have 10 lawyers. And this is paid for by the state a lot of the time if they're eligible for legal aid. So why does the law absolutely welcome any lawyer in that jurisdiction? Let's have 10 lawyers at the bar table there. But back in criminal law, we're still going to play to this notion that the victim is this, you know, babbling mess that can't represent themselves, that doesn't want a lawyer, that just needs to be protected from the law and keep them out of the courtroom as much as possible. And they're not even a party. But I'm here to say, of course, they're a party. They have the biggest interest in the case because without a victim coming forward to the police, there would be no criminal case. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) I think... How can we maintain this fiction and this nonsense that the victim is somehow, you know, we're going to be patronising towards them, that they're this... We have got waves of brilliant, intelligent young girls and young boys that are abused too that want to be heard, that want a voice. And if they want to mortgage their house and have the best attorney in the land, that should be their right. They they are a taxpaying citizen. They should have a right to express their view and have a voice in the criminal case. And um, Marianne, I just, I will, you know, in future sort of discussions here, I just want to go through how important it is we have um, these suppression orders. And so Mm -hmm. when you're talking about, you know, the importance of someone's voice and their truth, you know, as the underpinning of their survival as a survivor and how important that is to be heard, we still have these darn suppression laws that mm-hmm. quieten everyone up and they are misused in Australia really badly. <laughs> and so definitely what, oh, it's shocking. And oh. what we could do if we had a lawyer would be to, 
to actually express our views and to tinker that suppression order right from the start so that it isn't too overpowering and unnecessary. We could make them just fit for the purpose and that way you would be able to have your lawyer to tinker the conditions of that order. But currently, here in Australia, we have suppression orders put in place that take away someone's freedom of speech being the victim without the victim even being there in the courtroom, without the victim even knowing about it, and without the victim being served with the order. So here in Australia, I say victims should just speak about court cases out of turn. They should just breach suppression orders because really you can't be technically held to be in breach of an order that you're not served with. That's mm -hmm. the whole basis of our underpinning of our legal system in Australia is right. that you have a right to procedural fairness. So if you don't know about a suppression order and it's there, but it's, it's taking away your freedom of speech, surely you have a right to see it and be served with it. But here in Australia, that's how crazy it is because we're not classified as an actual legal party as such. We miss out on being served with it, which is just crazy because really we've got a lot of survivors that could be breaching their suppression order and not even knowing about it. So that's how crazy it is. Now, like the suppression order for you guys is like the gag order, basically. Yes. Okay. So Correct. We, we've got a lot of people that are just overriding the gag order and putting things on Facebook. Correct. And, totally Correct. Out. and I think they should. <laughs> I, look, I support that wholeheartedly because the law in this area in Australia does not make sense. As I've just said, in all other areas, say intervention orders, I'm not sure what you call them in America, the intervention orders where you, um, you know, prohibit someone from harassing you or stalking you, you know, those, those legal orders. Here in Australia, we call them intervention orders. And, you know, even those, you can go to court and, you know, tell the, the magistrate or the judge, you know, in your country, um, you know, what is going on and they can give you that protection order. But here in Australia, it's not active until it's served. And that's actually correct because you can't have people being in breach of an order that they don't know about yet and aren't mm -hmm. served with. And so I just look at what Australia does in other situations with their orders. And that's why I just want the same thing to happen with mm -hmm. these gag orders. It should be the same. They should be served on the victim so that the victim knows exactly what they can and can't say and the way they can and can't say it does it restrict them in terms of you know what's written or verbally or can they speak about it but just not mention names or mm -hmm. can they go the whole hog and mention names or can they use pseudonyms it's just a minefield why make it so tricky for survivors to understand and navigate it just mm -hmm. seems ridiculous so mm -hmm. well, unless like, it's to shut us up oh, yes and with Marita Murphy's case, you know, they find her for, you know, for confronting her abuser. Yes. So I'll explain. Marita's case is a, just a brilliant case to speak about because it shows the hypocrisy of our system. Mm -hmm. So what we have in America, I know that you were really um, keen on getting rid of the statute of limitations mm -hmm. because where you've got cases like, you know, Weinstein, Prince Andrew, etc., um, you used to be limited because if those um, cases were too long ago, you couldn't bring an action against that alleged perpetrator because it was considered legally stale. Mm -hmm. um, and so in Australia, when we had the Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse, we actually abolished our statute of limitations here as a recommendation by the commissioners in that mm -hmm. Royal Commission. And it was a wonderful thing because it heralded 
that acknowledgement that survivors take so long to come forward and to tell anybody about their abuse. So why should we be cancelled out because of the statute of limitations? So what we did in Australia, we changed the law. And we made it that if you are a victim of sexual abuse, you're not statute barred by any time period. You can bring it no matter how long ago your abuse was against um, you. And so that was a wonderful thing. And everyone was rejoicing, including me, having a little happy party, right? Mm -hmm. But then I went and burst all the balloons because I tell you why. Statute of limitations doesn't stop you from bringing it anymore. That's right. But when you get in a courtroom, what happens to you is what happened to Marita Murphy, and I'll explain. Marita's case was one of the first cases that went through after the statute of limitations was abolished. So she went to a lovely, glossy law firm that were very happy to take her on, no win, no fee, you know, like you hear so many advertised, and you think, well, this is great. I'm a victim. This is what I'm going to do. So her abuse happened many years earlier. I think it was around 50 years earlier. So it was a long time ago. Mm -hmm. um, but her law firm said, yep, step on right up because now the law's been changed for people just like you. And she went to court. And then what happens is they permanently stayed her matter. They said, this is too long ago. And I said to Marita when she told me, I said, no, you must have it wrong. They abolished the statute of limitations for cases like you. And she goes, no, Ingrid, I'm pretty sure that that's what they did. I checked her case. I looked it up and Marita was dead correct. And mm. I was dead wrong. And I could not believe it. I thought, what is going on here? And the problem is that when you don't win, that's right. You don't have to pay your lawyers any money. That's right. But... The person that you were accusing, that you're suing, right, for personal injury, they give you their legal bill. You have to pay their legal bill. So it's not like you're just going to try it on for size and if it doesn't work, your lawyers aren't going to charge you. Yeah, you've got the other person's legal bill. So she had to pay over $100,000 mm -hmm. and her case, her trial didn't even run properly. It was really bad. And so... That is the story. And since that time, we've had so many historic abuse survivors coming forward in Australia. We've had a lot of swimmers, you know, from the 1980s who allege that, you know, their swim coaches abused them and so forth. We've had a lot of people. But I tell you, our courts here in Australia are permanently staying the matter, which means it is not going to run. For the same reason, they say that the allegations are about actions that happened too long ago. And they're saying that is too unfair on the alleged abuser to try and think back and remember and fairly defend the allegations. So the court is sympathetic towards, towards the defendant to say, well, hold on, you know, they could have ABI, acquired brain injury. Um, it's just too long ago to remember even if they did do it. So we say it's too long ago. So Mary Ann, what I say mm. is, What's the difference? You may as well have kept the statute of limitations in place because if in practice it's like the statute of limitations still operates because it's still that time period that knocks you out, what is the difference? And that's what I'm saying. The talk is different to the action. <laughs> and um, so in Australia, we've become very good at, you know, dotting the I's and crossing the T's, but it's meaningless. It's legally meaningless for survivors. We've actually gone backwards in terms of our justice journey and our ability to get justice when we seek it. Even though they've opened the doors, so many other avenues for seeking justice now, oh, there's no problem with that. But actually obtaining justice, that's almost impossible. We have less than a 1% conviction rate. So. 
And again, with Marita's case, sorry, just one last thing. That's a civil matter. So that's different Mm -hmm. to the criminal matter. That was her suing him for the personal injury. But see, again, those cases don't work. And I'd say the ones that are getting media attention that do work, that's where there's an institutional link. So somehow the institution was responsible for that abuse, turned a blind eye to it. You may have told your school teacher and the school didn't do anything. Those cases are working in a civil jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. But the ones against just Joe blow up the road or your neighbour mm-hmm. or your uncle that's, you know, penniless, there is no point suing because you'll have a pyrrhic victory even if you win because there's no money, but you're having to fork out a lot of money even if you win because, remember, if you win, you do pay your lawyer. So, you know, these are calculations that are really relevant when some, you know, victims sitting in their, victim survivor, you know, sitting in their lounge room is considering telling after all these years. I'm here to say really at the moment it is a toxic minefield and don't do it. Don't do it until our legal brains trust fix this stuff because, you know, our top lawyers and politicians, they all know what I'm talking about. They all know this to be true. They know why the victim never gets up in these cases. And, you know, it's really only the misconception that because of the spin that they keep feeding the public that, you know, stops us from being highly critical. Um, And I just can't get my message out there far enough and quick enough to save so many survivors from going down the same rabbit holes that I've been going down, the legal rabbit holes. Definitely. I just felt so bad for Marita Murphy because she should oh. not have had to pay the opposing side $127,000. That's, That's right. And the thing is, exactly, because she never really got it to run anyway. It was stopped prematurely. Oh. And this is the problem that she, you know, you are paying such a high price and it's just adding insult to injury. Yes. And, you know, And then the big problem, Marianne, is when you've dipped your toe into the criminal justice system or the civil justice system and it doesn't work, that's not the end of the story. It might be the end of the story for the newspapers and the media, but it's not our end of our story. We still spend the rest of our life trying to find a forum to be heard and to be validated. And we're forever on a quest. And it's like, once you start this, you can't stop. Because what, where are you going to stop? You're going to say, oh, gee, no, I won't believe in myself and I won't do this. Like you're almost left with your truth, but it's stagnant and no one wants, wants to hear about it. You're almost an inconvenient truth. And that is an ugly thing to be. And that's why I say it is ugly to be unheard and not come forward and not supported, but it's almost the safer option of the two. Because I can tell you I'm as resilient as all hell, right? I am one of the most resilient people I know. I've been through every legal pothole but I know other people are not able to do what I'm, I've done. You know, a, a person with, you know, limited English skills or from another country or someone where, you know, women aren't respected as much and so their family won't support them in coming forward. All of those barriers, I just cannot even imagine if I had any of those issues as well on top of the framework that I've already got, which is, you know, such an angry lawyer. I'm, I'm so angry mm-hmm. that I've just stopped practising. that's how angry I am because when I would have a client, I'd feel like I was taking a lamb to the slaughter when we'd go to court because I already knew the outcome. As I said to you, I could change the client name on any file. It's always going to be the same outcome, no matter how bright, intelligent, confident, none of those skills or qualities matter. You know, they get you through school with a great big award, but then you're just in the real world, you are treated like 
you know, a like someone with no rights, no autonomy, you know, the minute you tell police, you lose all your power because the case is out of your hands and you don't have a legal say in it. And there's no other forum in my entire life, Marianne, where I felt so disenfranchised and so disempowered because the spin at school is that you can be anything, you know, you can be anything, work hard, you can have the best job, you can be prime minister if you want, you can be the president, you know, isn't that what we're all looking up to? Didn't we say, isn't that right. what we want for our young girls? Mm -hmm. Well, I'm telling you, I mean, the thing that affects girls the most, the most more than education or anything is being sexually assaulted. It goes to the heart of you. And if you can't get justice for that, you are like an angry ant mm -hmm. and especially if you're not respected because what it is because our society has built up this awareness you think that when you tell that you're going to be respected there's going to be justice and there's going to be a pathway for you and you know and that's why you're working so hard to get to that point in your life where you're ready to tell but if you could imagine someone just like it's like being hit over the head with a hammer every day because nobody wants to hear this and there's there's really no safe place for you to go after that mm -hmm. once you come out of your little rabbit hole and, you, and you've been brave like where are you going to go then you're going to hop around and like people are oh yeah we're sick of you oh ingrid's on about that sex assault stuff again or marita's on about her childhood sex assault like but that's what happens you stay stuck almost mm -hmm. like you know a fashion in the 80s you know where you wear the same hairdo or something mm -hmm. you know you're stuck there because you're still waiting for that modicum of respect from the legal system and you don't get it and no closure no so closure there is no closure you're in limbo and you're dangling just yep. waiting to you know waiting for the other shoe to drop whatever it's Correct. just a horrible feeling Correct, correct. And then when you're relaxing in the evening and watch TV, you see the myth, you know, the Cinderella that did, where the legal system did work for her. Oh, wonderful. Or you see a case where the police have been dedicated on getting the killer or the rapist for 10 years and they've been tracking them down, including internationally. All of that, I mean, I could count on one hand in the last 10 years, those cases. And they are not what happens every day. They are not the cases and that's not how they run. The cases run like my experience, 99% failure rate. And that's the same for family law. And you know, people that say, oh, it's not that bad. All you have to do is look at the statistics. We have one woman each week in Australia being killed to her current partner or previous intimate partner. And that doesn't count for all the people with injuries that present to hospitals or just stay at home with their injuries or see a GP. We have a shocking, shocking rate here in Australia. Mm -hmm. And so this is the problem that we've got that we, we're not even afforded the respect legally. So how can we expect people to treat us better when the example isn't even there the legal example isn't there <laughs> we don't even have legal respect by our top people that we vote for so why would i expect some teenage boy to respect a teenage girl when mm -hmm. you know the the role models are that the, the woman still doesn't even have and men the male victim is in the same position too does not have a voice so it's almost like we're reduced to being a child even mm -hmm. though we're adults coming forward about what happened to us as a child we are given some sort of a child status like you know be seen and not heard some mm -hmm. sort of archaic type of legal framework comes over us 
when we're used to being, you know, I can, I can be as litigious as I like over a tree branch hanging over my fence. And people respect me for that. I can blab on about my tree and all oh, the neighbor has to cut it down. I've got rights, you know, I've got rights. Mm-hmm, I can get mm-hmm. all angry about, you know, where my car's going to be parked. Oh, those things don't matter. They don't go to the heart of someone's soul. They don't cause the suicide rate and the self-harm rate. This is what causes it. Sex assault causes it. So this is where we need to be litigious. And this is where we need legal rights more than ever. And so this is... It's just a game of catch-up for the government. I am not going to put further people through this. I'm not going to play the lawyer's game and pretend that this is a victim-friendly system, right? Mm -hmm. And we've got a lot of people that play pretend in Australia. When we had the case against uh, Cardinal Powell, George Powell, we had a new um, innovation, if you like, that people claimed was going to be victim-friendly. What it was, it was cheap political stunt. Mm -hmm. We got a support dog in the courtroom. We allowed support dogs for the victims or the alleged victims of Cardinal Pell. Um, We allowed them to pat a support dog to help them give their evidence for the court case. Now, as I said, I went on national TV. You do not need a dog to pat when you are in a courtroom giving evidence. You need a lawyer. Mm -hmm. You cannot imagine if if defendants out there that are brought, you know, by a prosecutor with criminal charges, if they had a dog to pat, where would they be at? Like, it is absolutely ridiculous. If you are having heart surgery, you want the top heart surgeon. You don't want a care dog to make you feel good. You need someone that knows the heart and the arteries and the aorta and how to put the stent in. You need the expert on the heart surgery, not the emotional support dog. So mm. this is the joke that Australian government plays. We have support dogs because it's a new thing. You know, we have them in schools. We have them everywhere. And I tell you, the survivors fall for it. And this is the problem we've got. They think it's so lovely. Oh, I love that dog. You know, they give it a name called Coop. We patted Coop. Oh, it just, it makes me want to tear my hair out. Like, mm-hmm. honestly. They need a lawyer. And this is what my clients say to me. If I could be their lawyer consistently through all the jurisdictions, through all the legal hoops, that way they'd only have to tell their story once. They wouldn't have to tell it to different people at different times through that process. That is what respects victims. That would be a victim-friendly process. Forget about the dog, right? We can all have grandma in the courtroom with us or a friend or a neighbour or whatever. That's not where we need the support for justice, you know? They're the extras. And so that's why it's so offensive that our government spending money on these hand holders and ridiculous like we have someone called um, a witness assistance person in Australia and that's a person that it's like a social worker and they come into court with you and sit with you and sort of point to people and say that's the judge and that's the box where you'll give evidence you know this is not what we need (laughs) we need someone that knows the game knows what evidence is needed knows how to give the truth and in the form that gets legal traction And so that is a specialised skill. It is not something that someone telling the truth with, you know, snot coming out of their nose and crying and trying to recall different um, allegations that happened to them and and things that happened, that is called a hot mess. Mm -hmm. And that is not able to be legally synthesised properly to get an outcome that equals justice. So we need to stop with all of that sort of going down to the police station and telling the truth. It needs to be done calmly and over a period of time with a trusted lawyer 
that you have built a rapport with and you make sure you haven't left out anything and you're not doing it in a state of trauma. You're doing it in a state of calm because that statement to police is going to be picked to death by the best in the legal profession. And if you forget something when you're going down there in a state of trauma and told the police and they're synthesising what you're saying in, in their best English or their best, you know, language skills, which is, you know, leaves a lot to be desired, the problem is you're going to forget things. And then the police's answer is, oh, well, you can make what's called a supplementary statement. You can come back and make another one. That's okay. No, it's not okay. Because what the defence counsel does is they look at it and say, well, if you said this in your first statement, why didn't you say it in your second statement? Were you lying in the first statement or are you lying now, right? Mm. It's, it creates inconsistencies. And that is manna from heaven for a defence counsel, right, who's trying to defend in a criminal case the defendant. So we don't want inconsistencies. We just want the narrative to flow. It is the truth. But what I'm saying is, depending on how you ask a survivor and their circumstances and their environment and their comfort level, the truth is going to come out differently. Every time you tell what happens to you, it's slightly different. But it doesn't mean you're lying one time or another. It just mm -hmm. means that there are variations in a retell every time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, sometimes I'll tell you how I broke up with my boyfriend. That'll take me two hours. Another time I'll just call him a swear word and uh, it'll be the short version you know so that's the same thing and so we need to get clever about mm -hmm. survivors and get clever about getting justice for survivors because otherwise I say why don't we just take it out of the crimes act decriminalize it altogether because if our current um, stats would show that it is decriminalized because we don't really criminalize it we have a one percent conviction rate what would be the difference we might as well take it out of the crimes act and just call it a i don't know civil misdemeanor or something like that i don't know mm -hmm. i mean it's outrageous i'm not advocating that but what i'm saying is what is the bloody difference <laughs> if, right. if we you know took it out that's how bad it is we might as well take it out for a while until you know the, the lawyers, the, the lawyers with a platform can actually admit what is going on. And what it is, that movie Spotlight is mm -hmm. a fantastic movie because it really shows what happens. What we've got is a cottage industry by lawyers that love it the way it is. Because, mm -hmm. I mean, I have to speak about my husband, right? He's a criminal defence lawyer and he wins but there's a reason that he wins. Yes, he's good and he's intelligent and he does the best for his clients, all of those things that you'd expect. But every lawyer does that. Why does he win 99% of the time in sex assault cases? And I'm telling you, it's not because he's a good lawyer. It's systemic. It's systemic. It's already set up. I can see, I can see his stress level is not there to make sure that he represents that client to the best of his ability. Because I can tell you, all of his pleas get traction like he always gets a great result for his client mm -hmm. and I look at my success rates with my clients and I think it's not because I'm a bad lawyer <laughs> like mm -hmm. it's systemic my clients come out of court crying and his clients come out of court giving him a high five and paying him wads of cash I mean mm -hmm. there's something wrong here there is mm -hmm. something wrong and so it really goes back to you know I'd hate to be accused of going on about you know like a feminazi but I am a proud feminazi I'm a proud fem of whatever you want to call it because mm -hmm. it is something I've learned in my life I'm nearly 50 I'm 48 and I can see that you know violence is gendered 
Okay. You know, there are sometimes men in a terrible position. I've represented, you know, shocking cases and I really feel for them, but I'm saying my overwhelming statistic in 20 years of practice is it's women and children, women and children, women and children seeking safety from the law and they don't get it. But this is what I'm saying. The underpinning is the criminal case. The criminal case affects all the other outcomes in all the other cases. So if we don't get the foundation case right, of course, you know, the, the woodwork's not going to be right and the roof is going to fall. So, and that's what happens. And that's why we need to fix it from the ground up. And it's very, very simple. You know, it's a bill. It's an act of parliament to bring the changes that I say. It's not saying, oh, let's get rid of all the rights of a defendant. I'm not some, you know, crazy person coming in from left field with some crazy thing that requires, you know, a whole overhaul. No, I'm not. I'm saying one simple thing, just add another lawyer. I mean, it couldn't be easier. Lawyers love lawyers. The law mm -hmm. loves the law. It's so up itself. Just add one more attorney onto the bar table and that way the victim's voice is heard finally. Yeah, these victims need to be heard. This is just very sad. And mm -hmm. I, can't, I can't imagine your whole stress level throughout your whole career even. Correct. Correct. Fighting like a dog at a bone, taking everything very personally as if it were my own case. Because, but I mean, that has made me a better lawyer. And that's why I'm liked by my clients because I totally get them and I get why they are the way they are. I understand it. It's like you have to almost have that lived experience to really be the best lawyer in this area. You, you could learn it, I suppose, over time, but I just think there's nothing like having someone that actually has been through it themselves and really gets it because then my clients are so comfortable with me. It takes me five minutes to get the right instructions, like the ones that I really need. It, it's because the rapport is there. And, you know, sometimes I don't meet them in the office. I might meet them at a cafe or something like that because this is a specialised area mm -hmm. that really... You can't just give your pro forma type legal advice in this area. It's got to be really sensitive to the survivor if you want the proper instructions. You want to hear the real story, you need to sit down and mirror and match and, you know, with your client and, and relax. You know, if they're relaxed, you're relaxed, you know, mm -hmm. vice versa. So if you're sitting and you're uptight and you're all concerned about your pearl earrings, nobody's going to tell you what they've really been through. Mm -hmm. So you know, it, it takes a special kind and I'm just, yeah, I'm not going to let the government off on this. It's the government is the problem. We don't need people to be braver than they already are. They are brave like the movie, right? We don't need any more brave. We're brave as we possibly can be. We're boiling over at brave point. But that is not the public message, should not be that anymore. We've got enough brave people. It's what we do with them and the outcomes are so disrespectful. So that's really where we need to go with it. Mm. it's like everyone's talking about it but there's no action and it's exactly it, it's exactly and and the action you know, there's no results for the action but what it is we've got snouts in the trough right so mm -hmm. we've had a lot of action government-led action in this area but it's all spin so i'll give some examples we've had the royal commission into institutional responses to child sexual abuse, okay? That ran for about four years, five years um, in Australia-wide. It went, they went right across the nation. But again, their final report said, we do not recommend that the victim have a lawyer and for the victim to change to a legal status in a criminal case. This just defied 
all of their findings. I couldn't believe that that would be their conclusion. I was sure, I could have bet my life on it almost, that they would recommend that the victim have a lawyer. But they backed out, you know, they were cowards. And their final report, I'm sorry, said that they don't need a change. They said, with a bit of tinkering here or there, we can improve the victim's experience of the criminal justice system, which is just a lie. It's, it's not going to require tinkering. It requires giving them legal status and nothing shorter than that. So, you know, that was really bad. So we had the Royal Commission. Then we've had inquiries, government inquiries, separate inquiries into specific questions about the criminal justice system and the victim's role within it. And they also have required victims to pour out their story, give lots of stuff. But I feel like every time the victim participates in these things, it just goes nowhere. And the government's answer is, oh, well, that was cathartic for you, wasn't it? You have been heard because we are listening. No, it's not cathartic if it doesn't lead to an outcome. You're asking too much of already traumatised people, too much energy and too much reliving things for the sake of government getting it right. But then it's really up to the government to adopt the recommendations of any given Royal Commission or report. And what we've seen here in Australia is that the government doesn't adopt the recommendations or they adopt only a handful out of a hundred or, you know, they're very slow off the mark. Then what we had, oh, Marianne, you'll laugh at this. What we had, we had a redress scheme because the big wigs here in Australia decided, look, we're not going to put them through anymore. Obviously, they're traumatised. This is after the Royal Commission. We're going to be really sympathetic. We're going to set up a redress scheme so they don't have to jump through legal hoops and it will just give everyone a little bit of compensation and acknowledge them as a victim finally, which is what they really want because they've never had it because our system is so archaic. So mm. we'll give them that, blah, blah, blah. Redress scheme was a nightmare. What they did, they set it up actually in a way that is the antithesis of what a very senior psychologist, Dr. Carolyn Quadrio, recommended, which was they had a matrix of abuse. So they would actually scale the abuse and say, well, if you had you know, so many acts of sexual violence against you, we'll give you this much. And if you only had one, we'll give you this much. If there was physical violence included with the sexual assault, we'll give you a little bit of a loading on top of that. You know, it went through categorically like that. Oh, it was just shameful because you cannot grade victims of abuse. You no. see, it's not about the acts of individual abuse themselves. This is what we've learned. And I'm speaking from my own experience. It's about the effect of the abuse on you. So all survivors are united by the PTSD and our responses to the abuse. It doesn't matter whether someone used an object or a body part. It doesn't matter. It's the invasion of your sanctity of your body that matters. So these are the factors that we should have been looking at when it comes to compensation. You can't say, oh, someone's abuse is more serious because they were sexually assaulted five times. This person was only assaulted once. I mean, what, what even is that? Some sort of arbitrary nonsense. That is not the way that we should be dealing as a redress scheme for the nation here in Australia. So what happened to the redress scheme? It failed because hardly any people put in applications because people like me said, don't even waste your time to people mm -hmm. because it is offensive. So yes. And now what we've got is a lot of people um, suing them successfully where there's an institution involved because there's actually mm -hmm. money behind it. So it's worth their energy, you know, another two or three years of legal rubbish, but at mm -hmm. least it would have a positive outcome. But for survivors where it's, as I said, with no institutional link, it's a family member or something like that, which we know that's most abuse is by a family member, there is no point in suing because as I said to you, it, there, 
your costs end up being more than what you potentially gain. So it's, you know, only in a handful of cases that it would be, I'd ever recommend someone doing that. Mm -hmm. So it's just, it's not on. But also another thing I wanted to speak about, Marianne, um, and this might turn off some of your listeners, um, but it's a truth that I have to speak about. So I wrote two books. One is called Dolly Incapax and one is called Nolly Prosequi. And it's the Dolly Incapax book I want to speak about first. Just that, not my book I'm not going to talk about, but just the concept Dolly Incapax. Dolly Incapax is a legal presumption in Australia, which says that between the ages of 10 and 14, you can't know the wrongness of your actions. Mm-hmm. Like you can, know that, that you can know that it's wrong, but not the gravity of how wrong it is. And so therefore you can't be held criminally responsible. And at the moment in Australia, this is a big hot topic because a lot of people are trying to raise the age of criminal responsibility to 14. And that would mean that no child under 14 is responsible for any what we call criminal acts, then mm-hmm. we would say that that's not a criminal act because they're under 14. I am not in support of changing that to raise the age because I say that creates a whole new category and class of victims that can never get justice. Mm-hmm. That's saying to anybody that's, you know, a, a victim, if your perpetrator was under 14, you can't get justice. And I, I just think that that is wrong because to me, Everyone knows how serious rape is. Everyone knows. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, children these days are a lot more worldly wise than what they were mm-hmm. years ago when this legislation was made. And so I think, come on. I mean, mm-hmm. really, that is not the direction we should go, especially after the Royal Commission. And we learned that so much abuse is by children of younger children. So the perpetrators mm-hmm. are older children and the younger children are the victims. And if we know that to be true, because here in Australia, I'm not sure of America, but in Australia, most perpetrators are aged between 15 and 19 years old. So that just blew me away. Even I thought that it was older. I thought, you know, it was a lot of like that dirty old man, man right. idea. It's not. It's 15 to 19-year-old boys, um, you know, are the main perpetrators. So when you look at it, we don't want to be cancelling out groups of victims if we want to get this stuff right we really need to include them now that's not to say that the arguments aren't valid like some of the the um stakeholders that are suggesting that we raise the age it's because our indigenous population is over criminalized and i understand and respect those arguments but i think we need a nuanced response i think it's just a real danger to do this broad brush change to say no one under 14 can be held criminally responsible for any act, I think is a big mistake if we go that way. So anyway, I'll watch this space to see if it is. But yeah, I think that's my story. That's why I care about it so much mm-hmm. is the Dolly Incapax. It was my sexual assaults um, over four years. I was sexually assaulted, but by an older cousin who was five years older than me. Mm-hmm. So Um, you know, to me, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that he was still a child in terms Mm -hmm. of under 18. That doesn't matter to me. That would be, it's the same effect as if an adult did it because he was like an adult to me. He is that much older. Five years when you're young is huge. It's a difference between primary school and secondary school. So, uh, you know, that doesn't, cut the mustard with me we really need to get this right and no I've gone through this with a fine tooth comb even you know a lot of our laws in Australia are from England and even England abolished 
the presumption of Dolly Yinkapax because what happened, there was a very famous case of the James Bolger case, it was called. And it was mm -hmm. about this little boy, James Bolger, who was murdered by these two older children, but they were all like, I think the eldest child was something like 10 or 12, you know, mm -hmm. so these, these two older children killed this two-year-old boy mm. um, and there's footage of it there was no dispute that they killed him there was no dispute as, as to that but what was disputed was did they have the guilty mind to do it because mm. in a criminal act there's two elements there's the act that needs to be proved and then the guilty mind did they mean to do it that sort of thing otherwise obviously it's not murder um, but yes, so even England, after that case, they were so outraged, they abolished it because they recognised, look, you know, a child can have the guilty mind or I call it evil. It's not politically mm -hmm. correct, but I, I say evil. And I just think because it, it doesn't go with our notion of an innocent, lovely child, you know, with sparkling eyes and, and healthy hair and, you know, some gorgeous child with his whole world ahead of him and life ahead of him. To me, we've got to get rid of that. When we're talking sex assault, we just, we've got to take off our rose-coloured glasses and realise, you know, that for a lot of people, it is an older child. So, you know, if that's abhorrent to people, well, you know, I just say get with the reality because that's what it is a lot of the time. Well, I was always taught that kids know right from wrong by the age of at least seven. Okay. Correct. Then you're being told that, well, their minds aren't developed until they're like 26 years old and I'm thinking that's right uh but you know you should know right from wrong I mean correct uh, mind development I I think even as I was growing up I think I was mature yes to know right from wrong <laughs> Absolutely. Look, I've got a string of children, uh, stepchildren as well, but um, I look at my children and uh, some of the age gaps between them, and it's very similar to what happened with my cousin and I. And it wasn't, wasn't until I saw it in my own children and my daughter turned my age, and then I looked at my older sons and I thought, oh my God, I, I, I could see it physically. It was tangible what had happened to me because I could see the ages and because they're my children and I've raised them, I can see how they play and what they do. And they're miles apart. I mean, it's, you know, boys sort of start having boy only parties. There's, it's, it's just mm -hmm. completely different developmental areas and, and um, stages. And that's when it really clicked to me. And I was just about to turn 40. That's when I went to police. And I, I just thought, I can see it. Like, it's just so obvious. Like, this is horrible. I've carried all this for so long mm. and I'm not going to do it anymore. And my husband said too, you know, you've got to go to the police. What makes you think you're any better than a client? Like, you, you're exactly like your clients. And, and I was so offended at the start. I'm like, what? Hold on. I can withstand this. I can, I'll wait for this, Marianne. I can mm. vicariously heal through their healing. <laughs> what a load oh, of crap. <laughs> see, <sighs> until I was a client myself, didn't deal with this. You can't do it. You can't sort of heal vicariously through other people no you have to go and do the journey yourself and so that's what I did but yeah no it hasn't led to healing because one big topic also that I haven't covered because I've just been wearing sort of the lawyer's hat I've been talking about the effect on you as a survivor in the legal system but the real thing that goes to the heart is you lose all your family and friends mm -hmm. when you disclose like if your perpetrators in your family I can tell you, you can kiss goodbye your family because they all still support the perpetrator. It's like that group think. They're like all sheep, even if they believe me. You know, there's a taped confession in my case. 
He actually confessed it, admitted it, said he's sorry. Still doesn't change the family's view. The family still just want to pretend he never did it and life's going on. It is crazy in my view. But this experience, I want to share what happens because I don't want it to happen to other people. I don't want... See, people get confused. They think that the public message that everyone's so au fait with survivors and, and so pro their support and all of that, but not in your own family. You'll get support from other people, but not from those in your own family. So we've still got a long way to go. Really, the brave survivor in their family, when it's familial abuse, is ostracised. Mm-hmm. So I've lost a massive, big Croatian Catholic family here in Australia, um, all came out in the 50s on boats, you know, <laughs> that, that old story. Um, they all have just disowned me. I literally have no contact with that side of the family at all. Oh, Nor does my poor dad. My mum and dad stand by me, but my dad has lost all of his siblings, all of his nephews and nieces, all of his, you know, cousins, relatives, everything. They all stand by the perpetrator, which, you know, in this enlightened time, I just think you're kidding. These are cousins that don't support me that probably donate to women's refuge shelters. That's the irony. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. they're probably a member of Zonta and pro-women's organisations, you know. They're very educated and very well-to-do. What does that mean? I mean, what what is the point of being a do-gooder in society but you don't actually support your own family member when they come forward? This is the, the joke. This is the sort of cognitive dissonance you know that that we're seeing time and time again so i don't want brave survivors to lose all their family i I just don't think it's worth it and people would say to me oh but you would always have had to have told you could never be quiet but the thing is i look at the cost of what i've lost and i think wouldn't there have been smarter ways for me to go about this if this is the state of our legal system maybe what i should have done is be brave but stay in the family and just make his life a living hell like be more conniving, like be more like, you know, get more power by staying in the family and not losing my place in it. Because you know who else has lost out? All of my children. All of my children have lost all of their extended family. I mean, like I had probably 40 cousins, 50 cousins that I'd see regularly because, you know, when you're new Australians coming to a new country, you sort of all stay together. So we were a very big family, but close knit. And we had, you know, communions, we're Catholic, you know, first communions, confirmations, um, christenings, uh, you know, every weekend there was some sort of celebration, a birthday or, you know, it was just massive. And so they've lost all of that, all of that culture, all of that, you know, big piano accordions, music, loud singing, all the creation food, the cakes, you know, but, and, and I've lost a lot too, because when you're a survivor, there seems to be a couple of things that I've noticed in my time. You can either be quiet like a mouse and be that sort of a person, or you become an extrovert to compensate as if nothing to see here. I'm all happy. I'm having a happy life. Like, no, no, don't look here. And that was me. I was the centre of this Croatian big family in our town of Ballarat and I'd go to every celebration and take all my kids and be part of it and it was just like, what am I even doing? How can I even be in the same room as this person? You know, what, what, what sort of a game am I playing with myself really? Mm-hmm. And so it all came crashing down but I tell you, there is just too much to lose. The price that you pay for wanting justice is just too high in Australia. It's just too high, you know. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Virginia um, Defray you know, I just wish her the absolute best in her in her quest. But what I'm saying is she's also buoyed by the media, by a lot of people supporting her, which is wonderful. Don't get me wrong, that's wonderful. I I, I would love to be part of her support party, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I'm saying is most survivors don't get that. 
you've just got to think, would I be able to do it alone without any attention, without anyone caring about my case? And I'm, I'm just saying, you don't do it for the glory. I'm not saying that, but what I'm trying to say is that those, the feel good things that she gets every day, even in times of severe sorrow or doubt, that helps buoy her over the halfway mark. You know, it's, it stops her committing suicide. It stops her self-harming maybe, you know, on some days or, or whatever her story is. But I'm saying most survivors, they don't get anything that, like you tell your story and the police don't even charge the person. And mm. so then where does that leave you? You've told the family what they've done. You've told the police and then it goes nowhere. Well, okay. So what you think life continues after that and you're going to go to a family function and all be happy. They disown you. They disown you because they don't want the reality. And they just, yeah, it, it's really, really hard being a survivor once you tell. That's what I've found. I mean, it's terribly sad, but uh, if you don't, what, you know, if you don't tell and so you're ostracized, it, you could be protecting your own children from this person bothering them. Yes, that's true. That there, look, there are so many things and it depends on what hat you're wearing. Like, do you do something and tell so that that person doesn't do anything to another person? And that's a lot of survivors say that, particularly when we've had, you know, so many um, cases against the Catholic church here in Australia and the priests. And that is a very valid point, Marianne. But by the same token, think about it. It's only a 1% conviction rate. So mm. you telling doesn't stop it at all, really, because mm. hardly any people are found guilty and go to jail. It's 1% in Australia. So 99% of the time, which doesn't get in the media, you've told, but what do you think? It all comes back on you. Unless they go to jail, and even in some cases when they go to jail, the family still support the person. They're like, I hear, but I protest my innocence, you know, and the family just keep visiting them in jail and say, oh, that little lying girl, she's, you know, all she ever did is lie. We see it time and time again. I've seen it with John's clients. And, um, you know, so... It's, it is, I think it's again, another misconception. You think that you're going to save someone else from it and oust that person. But I don't know that that necessarily happens, mm -hmm. um, which is a sad reality. Like, oh, I'd love that to be true because it sounds really good. Like you're doing it for, you know, utilitarian purpose as well as for yourself, you know, mm -hmm. but I don't know about that. I think we're not smart here in Australia. I don't, I still don't think this is going to really shock listeners now. I still don't really think we care about sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what you're going to say to that. I'm convinced. I think people think they care about it. But when it comes to it, in the examples I've given, how could you say that Australia cares about sexual assault? We don't even have the right to a lawyer yet in this case. Like we don't have mm. legal autonomy. We don't, we don't have a right to representation. We, we don't have a voice. It's like us not having the vote yet, but saying, oh, yes, we will consider what you think about, you know, public roads and, and public spending. But you don't have a vote, so you can't vote for your leaders. Like that's what it's like. I feel like I don't have the legal vote. And, mm. you know, I can't believe in first world countries like America and Australia that we don't have a lawyer for the victim. I just can't believe that, you know, enough angry women haven't changed it. You know, women at the top, you know, maybe RGB would have, if she'd lived a bit longer or something, you know, I, I don't know. Like what, what is it going to take for, you know, women to, to get this and understand it? Or is it still men at the top stopping it? And, and those women, you know, having to kowtow to them to just to have their own job. I don't know. Like mm -hmm. how can something this obvious and, 
ridiculous still be the status for survivors in the criminal justice system. I don't understand it. And then, you know, Marianne, we have all the American crime dramas. We love them here in Australia. We're addicted to all of your series. Um, and we have some of our own homegrown ones as well. But honestly, I don't even understand the popularity of it. We have, you know, all our law schools in Australia. A lot of people love to study criminal law. They love it. They love that whole good, bad. They love the psychology. I think there's something almost sexy or, or powerful about being a criminal lawyer. People think that that's a huge status in, in you know, society. And I think but you're defending the defendant. And I understand that's, that's good. They always deserve a defence. I believe in that. But do you understand, like, why can't we just have one lawyer like that, a smart, amazing lawyer for the victim? Why is that just such a... People look at me blankly like in the legal profession, like specialists, like they're like, oh, Ingrid, that's a good idea. It's a bit creative, but I don't think we can afford it. Like, why is it so like, oh, it's just too hard. Like, mm -hmm. how can that be too hard? We have little children having an independent children's lawyer. Like, since when should children be heard in a family law case if I, as a 48-year-old victim, can't be heard in my criminal case? Like, what? It just doesn't add up. No, none of it does. No. You know, no, so I want answers. I want answers because uh -huh. they know the, the top, look, they're all lawyers. All these politicians all got law degrees as well. They know why victims mm -hmm. are having a terrible time. And that's why I just think it is reprehensible that they are not giving us the real change that will actually give a net effect to our justice journey. Like they actually deliberately fettering that journey and still going on about the spin you know, by, you know, naming a Survivor Australian of the Year. Like, that is just meaningless to me mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. the legal infrastructure isn't there. And so every time I see these, you know, advocates that are given a platform, it's really a carefully selected few that the government already know are, are going to say a certain thing and don't mm -hmm. hold the knowledge that I hold. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I just wonder, is this happening in America? Are you getting, is anyone getting backlash or trying, you know, like Gloria Allred, I just love her to bits, but, you know, I'm sure she's probably doing a lot to, to make changes so that she can be mm. representing people in, in criminal matters, the victims, because it just seems that that would be the natural thing. I mean, that's the gap where currently there is no lawyer for the victim. You know, mm. you can represent them in a civil matter, um, you know, and sue them till the cows come home, but you can't represent them in the criminal matter. We're mm. just a nothing. We're actually illegal nothing. We can just become mm. a witness for the prosecution only if our case gets that far. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's still, we don't actually have a position. We don't, we're just, oh, I'm tearing my I hair know. out. Uh, I don't blame you because, I, you know, as you said, if, if there's an institution involved, then there's more of a chance of winning. Yes, but if you're on yes. your own, same over here. If you're on your own, yeah. you know, uh, you've got to, a lot of attorneys won't even bother with you. Correct. Yeah, that, no, they turn you away here as well. The specialists okay. in sexual assault, they'll turn you away. They'll say, look, you'll end up having a Pyrrhic victory. We understand that you've got this and you may have this evidence or whatever, but, you know, it's still, you're going to have a Pyrrhic victory. You're going to spend more. They're going to play legal games because mm -hmm. the law allows the legal games. This is the problem. You have a whole lot of people slowing everything down and deliberately fettering the process so that, victims get exhausted and give up and end up settling right. at mediation or something like that just to get rid of it because mm -hmm. they know that at a trial they're likely to win 
but mm -hmm. we never get that far, you see. Very, very rarely do we get that far. So yeah, we run out of money, we run out of energy. Um, this all, all the emotional toil also has a huge effect on our physical health. So even at the time, if you don't, this happened to me, even at the time you think, you know, I, I have my physical health at least, I'm stressed, but I'm, I'm physical, my heart, gave way like my heart i'm like what like i'm a fish young lady no you can only take so much of this legal re-trauma and mm -hmm. so you know that ended up having a really bad effect you know on on my health and that was part of the reason why i just stopped practicing but that wasn't the main reason because you know i'm under a care of a cardiologist that wasn't the main reason the main mm -hmm. reason is i can't stand to practice another day until mm -hmm. i can be their lawyer in that criminal case Mm -hmm. because I don't want to practice in family law until the allegations will go somewhere and currently mm -hmm. they don't and then all that happens is in the family law case where there's sexual assault allegations what happens is because that fails to be proved in the criminal case 99% of the time so then what happens is oh the allegation is oh mum made it up to try and get a leg up in you know family law proceedings made up all these horrible allegations about dad or uncle or whoever it is so that is just in my experience not true Women that look, you might know someone or someone else might know someone, but that's the anomaly. That's so rare, it's not even worth talking about really. The bulk of those allegations are real. They're real. And women are hysterical often when they are telling. And, you know, there are a whole lot of um, myths about the, the way a victim presents that, you know, that they are crazy. You know, we keep getting called the crazy woman, you know, that makes up all these allegations. Like, I just think, pretty much most of my female clients have been alleged to be crazy. And I can tell you a handful only have had any you know, real mental health disturbance. Um, it, it is just crazy that the other side consistently make up these ridiculous false mm -hmm. accusations about women and their mental health. Mm -hmm. And I'm sick of that as well. But yeah, look, it really, it just takes practicing in this area to really get it. Mm -hmm. And I've got it and I don't want any more of it. And I don't want any more survivors to come forward until this is fixed. And right. so, you know, even for, I'd say maybe the last five years of my practice, um, like when a new client would come to me and they'd be considering going to the police, I'd just roll my eyes and I'd just say, oh no, oh, don't do it to yourself. Don't do it to yourself. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it really, it just did shape my whole advice, this journey. And it changed me as a lawyer because I think I was, before I actually experienced it as a client myself going through the criminal justice system. I think I was very different. I, I sort of thought that, you know, being brave and, and doing those things and listening to my advice that would actually help them. But I realized that it's just in vain. Like you really, it really, that system does require you to be victimized, to stay a victim because you can't transcend that system and, and the way it pigeonholes you as this, you know, victim that has no say and you get stuck there. So I'm still traumatised. When I drive past a court, I'm traumatised. And mm -hmm. I think, why is that? Like, because you know what? Because I have no respect for it. So right. when I look at the court and I see the emblem there, it makes me angry. It makes me angry that I had wedding photos in front of the court, Marianne. Mm -hmm. When I met my husband, you know, it's a second marriage. I met my husband at work. And, you know, I was so proud to be a lawyer. And I was so proud, you know, that we had it in the background. I just cringe. To think of that now I cringe and this is not good because I like to think I'm a very bright sort of lawyer that victims absolutely need but they have lost me because 
I just refuse to be part of this system that just does not lead them to justice and actually re-traumatizes them. And all that happens is money changes hands from them to me for, for really nothing. Um, mm. And in some cases, you know, one of my clients had to sell their secondhand car to pay my bill. Um, mm -hmm. This just, it just does not make me feel good. It's just, it's a, it's just horrible. And often women in a family law case don't have money to pay a lawyer. So I often accepted in just drips and drabs the best that they could pay um, along the way, just depending on what other expenses they had. But, you know, it's really to, to operate as a lawyer in this space is it's just a devotion of love and commitment. There's really not much money in it at all. Um, and it's just, it's like a devotion to the cause, but it needn't be that way. We could have success stories. You know, we could have, you know, parents paying child support. We could have parents, you know, where they have care of the child because they are actually in danger in the other parents' care, mm. but we're just too cowardly to do anything about it. We've, we're so politically correct now. We've mm. got to make sure that the child spends time with both parents, no matter the allegations. Here in Australia, we have judges that still award spend time to the parent where there's horrific allegations, even where they're um, a known pedophile and they're on the sex offenders register. Here in Australia, we have judges that still give spend time unsupervised to that parent who's on the sex offenders register. So to me, I just think like parents mm. are coming to me for help to stop that. And there's nothing I can do because that's the precedent. So Australia's you know, family law system is really bad and we're criticized so much. It's in the media all the time. So. Um, it's yeah, it's happening here as yes. well. And yes, um, you know, it's, and, and we still have to talk about your second book. And I thought maybe we could do that oh. on, on the next part. I don't want to suck up your whole day. You know, <laughs> we'll do it next <laughs> time for sure. Definitely. Cause uh, this was very informative and we need, you know, a voice to tell people how it really is. Yes, and yeah. absolutely. And in Australia, the voices that we're hearing, are usually when they look at this space, it's all wrong. You get it from the survivors. Well, that's really good. We do need to hear from survivors. But then what they do, they ask defence attorneys what their view is of this. They ask judges or ex-judges, retired judges, you know, that might have an, a view. But remember, there's no one with legal nows that they're speaking from a victim's perspective. There is no one like me that's actually sought after to ask. So we're missing the legal brains trust behind the victim's perspective. So mm. a victim might say, because this has happened many times in Australia, I've been, I've been following this space with a fine tooth comb, but they might ask a victim like, oh, yes, like what do you need? And in one case, the victim said, oh, yeah, what I really needed, I feel like I needed someone that was across all of it and could help me navigate through all of it. Just someone that could piece together and when I've been to the policeman and I thought oh my god it's lawyer you're looking for the word lawyer but see they don't even know that they don't have one because they think that that police lawyer is their lawyer mm -hmm. and that's the problem that we've got so even in terms of a victim articulating what could improve their situation they don't actually have the knowledge that they're missing the lawyer so that they their answer says, I need a lawyer. Do you know what I mean? It's right. only that misinformation. So that's why I'm here and I'm trying to keep speaking about it because, you know, otherwise I'm saying it's just a cottage industry and the same lawyers are going to say the same things. You know, we even have our prosecution service, the head of it, um, it's the DPP here in Australia, it's called. So the director of public prosecution says, 
you know, in one of her answers, she said, oh, you know, sometimes just victims will never understand it. You know, sometimes we have to withdraw a case, blah, blah, blah. She said words to this effect. But, you know, they just never understand. And I suppose victims will never understand. And I thought, how dare you? I thought, how dare you say that about victims? They don't understand because they don't have legal knowledge. And this mm -hmm. is a thing. You are privileged and understand why they don't understand why police might be dropping a case, which is all about their allegations. But, you know, give them a lawyer and they'll understand. They'll understand mm -hmm. how inefficient your prosecution service is for a start. You know, mm -hmm. it makes me angry. So, again, it's about who you ask and it's also about assumed knowledge. Mm -hmm. And I think that assumed knowledge is not actually part of survivors i don't think they actually hold the knowledge that can empower them so that when they're asking the right questions and getting the right answers and so that's yeah we'll look at that with book two and i'll explain what i've done it just over the last couple of years i've looked at what australia's done and i've looked at the you know the spin behind it and what we can do i've gone to most of the experts and asked them so i've got quotes on what they say and you know really looked at it but um there's a lot of there's a lot of corruption in Australia when it comes to this area. There's a lot of people saying all the right things and then in the background doing the opposite. So. Mm -hmm. Well, how, how can people reach you? Do you want people to reach out to yeah. you? If you have any Absolutely. Yes, okay. for sure. Okay. Yeah. So I can provide all those details to you and then you can put them up. Is that the best way? Sure. That's My contact fine. emails and so forth. Yeah. But sure. look, the, the books rather than I should explain the books are like a manual almost they're mm -hmm. like someone going through the system and what they need to know so and they're written in plain English so it's not all legal mumbo jumbo that you read and go oh this is boring I don't even understand it I've written it so that you actually know like what it means and where you stand and really try to break it down for the everyday person um, which is what I've been doing for 20 mm -hmm. years, really, in the way I give my advice. So um, the books, I think, will, you know, they'll probably need to ask very little questions of me because mm -hmm. they really are self-explanatory. And, mm -hmm. you know, just a trigger warning, the first book, Dolly Packs, maybe the first 60 pages is about my childhood sexual assault experience. But it's not, um, it's not there to sort of have a graphic expose. It's just there to show the background and where I come from and the patriarchal family that I'm a part of mm -hmm. and why then their reaction has been the way it is. And then I found that the patriarchy again is the legal system and that supports my cousin and, you know, the, the, all the parallels between it. So there's very little trauma in there. It's more a call to action. And the second one is definitely that. The second one is a continuation to show how crazy the, the journey has been for me because I keep jumping to another jurisdiction to get validation. And so um, the reader will be yeah just most interested anyway in both of the books because it really shows that you're just in a legal labyrinth, really. Mm, it's a legal really, labyrinth. And, it is. Oh, it's just a shocker. It's a shocker. It's but yes. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad I had you on and um, I'll schedule another time. So don't okay. jump off, okay? <laughs> yes, no, that's fine. A good slam the gals a podcast to help the public understand what really goes on in these family courtrooms. I'm your host, Marianne Petrie, author of Dismantling Family Court Corruption, Why Taking the Kids Was Not Enough, and Cry Out for Justice, Poems of Truth. Please join us again here with attorney Ingrid Irwin, and we will talk again. Thank you so much. Thank you, Marianne. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.